a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored the relationship between mental illness and behaviour, particularly when used against others. Our first guest is Dr Raj Daji, an expert of international significance with over 22 years of experience as a clinical psychiatrist and researcher. We were then joined by our second guest, Dr Anthony Zarns, intensive care and emergency physician who has worked as a senior consultant in Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. Dr Raj Daji is a forensic psychiatrist with the Forensic Care Problem Behaviour Program and Senior Lecturer in Forensic Psychiatry at the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science at Swinburne University of Technology. He also practices privately. Alongside his clinical work, Raj researches aspects of sexual offending, including sexual homicide, sadism and internet offences. Prior to moving to Australia, Raj had an extensive clinical and research career in Edinburgh, Scotland, with a particular focus on sexual offending. A leader in his field, Raj became the first expert accredited by the Scottish Risk Management Authority to assess risk posed by serious violent and sexual offenders for the High Court, and the first mental health professional on the board of the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission. And also, he's the author of over 60 publications. So we're here to talk about quite a provocative and appointed question, which is whether mental illness is a weapon. You've had a truly fascinating boundary-pushing career with some formidable achievements, in the area of forensic psychiatry, and particularly understanding why people perpetrate harm. It's such an intriguing professional choice. I thought I'd start by asking you what inspired this professional direction and how did it all begin? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to actually when I was a kid. I was always fascinated by what's the best way to put it, the, the kind of the nastier elements of society and the horrible things that happened um so um even when I was really young you know I used to collect newspaper clippings about serial killers and I was I was just fascinated by the the kind of horrible stuff um but I wasn't a disturbed little kid or anything I kind of got on well with others and did well at school went to medical school because I was I was kind of fascinated by the human body and how it worked I, I thought I'd become a proper doctor like a surgeon or something. And when I went to medical school, um, I didn't even realise psychiatry is something the medics did. And then at medical school, I became disillusioned with medicine in general. But actually, the most important thing was um, I watched Science of the Lambs. And after I watched Science of the Lambs, I became fascinated by, by weird murderers. And I read a book about a British serial killer. And the thing that really grabbed me about that book wasn't the kind of gore and the horrible stuff it was the chapters on the why and was this guy ill or was he not ill was he responsible was he not responsible and I got a forensic psychiatry textbook out of the Edinburgh Medical Library and read it from cover to cover and I was just completely hooked it was like I'd found this really fascinating area um, that was actually something that 
people who are medically qualified do. And I was like, this, this is what I want to do. So when I was um, quite a young medical student, I was like, okay, I'm going to become a forensic psychiatrist. And I want to work with um, people who are personality disordered or who are psychopaths or who are sexually deviant, who commit um, what most people consider awful crimes, not just for a pure interest, but also because I want to understand them. But, you know, can we actually do anything to help them? And... Um, and then when I became a psychiatrist, I actually found I really enjoyed psychiatry anyway. Forget about all that stuff. I got on pretty well with people and um, actually really enjoyed all the other bits of psychiatry as well. That had nothing to do with forensics, but carried on into forensic and did my training in forensic. And, um, and you know, when you make a decision when you're really young about what you want to do, when you actually get to that point, it's actually quite a relief to find it is what you wanted it to be. And... Um, and I think I'm kind of one of those annoying people that still has a bit of a, a kind of um, a schoolboy enthusiasm about the job because it's absolutely fascinating. I think we make a difference, um, but it's just a really, really interesting area. So I'm kind of see myself as someone who's lucky enough to get kind of paid for doing my hobby. Um, which is quite sad in some ways. But I think it's also quite inspiring, really. I mean, the question that came up as you were speaking to me is around whether or not these people can be helped. And the question I want to put to you sort of at the outset here is um, where does, let's say, psycho psychopathology come from? Oh, so that's such a big question, really, because, I mean, if you're thinking of psychopathology with a broad definition in terms of everything that people can experience that is dysfunctional or distressing or abnormal or that... Um, I guess what I'm saying is you from a young age had an absolute fascination with people that do bad stuff yeah and you know you may have had broad interest through adolescence and young at young adulthood and then pursued it in a functional way in a in a way that actually helps society is someone that goes on to become a murderer predestined or do they have an early fascination with harming other people and early early traits of being um pathological some people who do go on to commit crimes like murder they they do have uh, pathological traits from a very early age um and some people um don't at all um and it's largely due to other things that happen later in life and situational circumstances so for example if you look at people who commit murder about 50 to 60 percent of them have got personality disorders okay in the general population that's about five maybe ten percent so, and by definition, personality sort of something that's been there since you were a child. So there's something about having... Can we just... That's interesting. So what is yeah. a personality disordered child like? Because you're saying that a, a child yep. that's yet to kind of fully mature, you could say that child is personality disordered or they're on track to be a pain. Yeah. No, I mean, the the thing you've got to be very careful with when you're saying that someone's got personality disorder is what you do is you don't diagnose that until the person's an adult. And then when you look backwards, there's always signs of it from childhood. But many children who've got difficulties and problems don't continue to have those problems as adults. So you can't you can't go spotting a child at five or ten who's necessarily going to develop that way. Um, although when you do work with um, some of the severely personality sort of people, the most severe cases of people with personality disorders that I work with are people who might be called psychopaths, who are callous and cold and predatory individuals. When you look backwards, 
usually see the signs of that when they're quite young in like terms what? of like callousness. Um, callousness as children. So we recognize that there's a group of children, they're relatively rare, who have what we call callous, unemotional traits. They're cold. They don't respond like other children. So a lot of antisocial children aren't actually cold and callous. If anything, they're um, emotionally reactive and emotionally tend to be emotionally unstable to an extent. Quite often they've had quite difficult childhoods and um, they and, and then they go on to get into trouble because they're emotionally reactive and unstable. The callous kids, they don't respond in the same way because they're cold and they detach. They don't have that same feeling for other people. And so as they're developing, that's not to say every child like that becomes a psychopath, but that's a cool thing. And as they're developing, other things happen to them. For example, the way they're parented or not parented interacts that callousness. And you then can develop into the type of adult who might not have feelings for other people. If you don't have feelings for other people, um, then, for example, if I get annoyed at someone, I might just get annoyed at someone in my head. But if I, if you get annoyed at someone and you have no feelings for other human beings and no inhibitions, then why wouldn't you hit them? And why wouldn't you smash their face? So to kind of extend on that question, where does something like a garden variety depression where people are also becoming numb to their own feelings intersect with something like this kind of long-standing entrenched psychopathology that extends from childhood deep into adulthood. We now live at a time when there's a, a, apparently an epidemic of mental illness. How can we start to understand or how do you view that epidemic in relation to this other cohort? Do they relate? Um. It's complicated. I think my, my, my overall answer would be probably not um, overall. What we do know is, forgetting just about psychopaths, but if you take the whole range of people who have some personality difficulties from when they're young, if you've got personality difficulties, it means you find it difficult to interact with other people. Um, you have difficulties with emotions, difficulties in terms of the way you think about yourself. That can make you vulnerable to developing things like depression when things go wrong in life. Um, so yet yeah, some people with personality disorders can develop things like depression, but most people who develop depression don't have these long-standing personality difficulties. Um, people, you, you, you're right to say when people come depressed, they can become numbed and the emotions can become flattened. That's very different from what you come across in people that we'd call psychopaths because in people, people who are psychopathic, they, they have no feelings for others. People who are depressed, describe this blackness or sadness or emptiness, which isn't a callous disregard for others. It's just not having feelings or having very, very um, negative feelings. So it's, it's different. Um, most people with depression are never violent with, towards other people. Um, and if, if they are violent, it's towards themselves. Um, very rarely you come across people who are depressed and suicidal who sometimes commit horrendous crimes like killing their children or killing their partners. It's relatively rare um, and it can happen with some people who are depressed and suicidal. But I think it's really important to say like people who go through that are very different from people who are kind of cold, callous, predatory psychopaths. It's completely different kind of emotions that are going on. So if we were to kind of dive into, say, a hospital emergency department in metropolitan Melbourne on any given Saturday night, 
we would have people presenting after having been violent or, um, I guess, conducted themselves in a way that were harmful to themselves and or others. Some people would say that we have a mental health crisis in that our current mental health services are close to buckling under the weight of um, this distress. Do you think where what we're witnessing is, I guess, increase in recognition for mental distress and discomfort, or is there genuinely a rising tide of this kind of problematic coping mechanism? If I can, can I use that term? Is that appropriate for me to say? Yeah, I um, I think it's really complex. I, I, I'm kind of slightly careful about what I say because I'm not necessarily an expert in the epidemiology of mental health disorders broadly, but my kind of understanding um, would be that kind of the severe mental illnesses that we deal with, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, they're probably happening at the same rate that they've always happened at. Um, personality disorders are probably no more common or less common than they've ever been. Um, when you look at the kind of research, I think there are some conditions that are linked to things going on. So, for example, I, I, I don't know about um, other people, but I've certainly felt more dejected and down recently with the lockdown and coronavirus. And I think so that there, there is something about things that happen in society that, that do impact on mental health. Um, but those kind of more serious can or I don't want to downplay the seriousness of some of those other conditions, but those conditions that we sometimes call serious mental illness, um, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, they're probably fairly constant in terms of the rates they occur at and probably haven't increased recently. And the interesting thing about the people who uh, we see in emergency departments who are, who are aggressive or violent or difficult, a lot of that is alcohol and substances. Um, you know, I, I didn't work in... A&E for a long time. When I did work in A&E, most of the people who tried to punch me were people who were drunk. You know, that's the classic situation. Well, as someone that did work in A&E and that did get hit in the head a couple of times with the phone or whatever, I'm, I'm still to this day confused about where the line is between bad behaviour as in, you know, are they just lashing out because they can and there's no consequence or whether they are genuinely doing that from a place of mental distress. I mean, some of these some of these instances result in people getting handcuffed and chained down to the bed. How do you, as a psychiatrist, look in on that situation and go, okay, well, that person is just drunk and not in control of themselves, and that person has, um, you know, got bad behaviour? How do you know the difference between mad, bad, or sad? Yeah, I um, think one of the important things is that, um, you know, that you can have a mental health problem and be good, in quotes. You can have a mental health problem and be bad, if you want to use those terms. I think um, good and bad or evil, good and evil, aren't really concepts I find particularly useful for me when I'm looking at someone's behaviour. What I always want to do is understand what the underlying things are that are going on and how we need to address them. So... For example, a lot of people would say, well, if someone's got schizophrenia and they're hearing voices and they're delusional and they, they're, they're violent towards someone, then they're, that's, they're, they're less blameworthy than, say, someone who's drunk and, and, and hits someone because they're drunk. Um, you know, but how blameworthy they are isn't really that interesting to me. What 
I want to do is kind of think, well, what, what's driving that behavior? And then what are we going to do to intervene? And the moral judgment that you put on whether that's good or bad um, is kind of for other people. It's not, not, not for me. So I'm not saying that's not a legitimate way of looking at things, but for me, it's about understanding, not excusing, because some people go, well, if you understand, you're making excuses. Um, I'm not really interested in excuses. I just want to understand why someone's acting like they are at the moment, because then I can come up with an idea of what we can do to stop it happening. And that's that's what my job's about. One of the things I know you've done is act as an expert witness to criminal trials. Yes. And I guess the idea of a powerful, famous person being accused of improper criminal um, sexual behaviour or, you know, sexual misconduct or um, violent behaviour or unethical behaviour is not an isolated thing. And often the plea of mental illness comes up. Um, hypothetically, let's say you were you were called to um, make comment on, say, Harvey Weinstein and his conduct as a sex, you know, as an alleged sex addict. What would you say? What What's your expert sort of lens on that sort of a situation? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm going to talk generally. I don't want to talk um, specifically about any individual. But um, yeah, my role in in any case. Um, that might be like that, where there might be um, particular issues that might be related to someone's um, offending behaviour, is, is to to assess them and see if they've got a you know a condition, a mental condition that might be, uh, you know, my my first step is to go, do they have, is it present? And if it is present, was it present when they did the behaviour that they're in trouble for? And if it was present when they did the behaviour they were in trouble for, how was it linked to that behaviour? Was it indirectly linked? Was it directly linked? Did it cause the behaviour? Um, and I and now other people will maybe take that view and then go, okay, well, Dr. Darji said he's got this condition. It was linked to this behaviour, therefore he's less responsible. But that's someone else's decision, not my decision. Now, with something like sex addiction, um, that's like it, firstly is it a thing it's it's controversial um because you know for example when you um look at people who say they're sex addicted because it's got the word addiction in it people think of drug addiction or other types of addiction and the probably the underlying thing that's going on isn't similar probably to what happens in drug addiction but we do know that there are some people who uh, are more likely to sexualize situations that shouldn't be sexualized. They might be more sexually preoccupied. Uh, they might be hypersexual. Um, we know that people who um, get involved in lots of impersonal sexual behavior are more likely to commit sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual offenses. And we know that people who commit sex offenses who have got that level of sexual preoccupation um, are more likely to do it again so it's an important thing to look at um it's interesting dsm i can't remember which version of dsm so the american diagnostic system um looked at whether they would incorporate sex addiction and they decided not to because they didn't think it wanted it because they didn't think they wanted to draw the parallel with substance addiction um interestingly um Recently, they tried getting the term hypersexuality or hypersexual disorder in, but they rejected that, even though the field trial showed it was valid. I think they were worried about, again, this issue of 
people kind of getting a diagnosis for what might be bad behavior. Interestingly, ICD-11 that's coming out, which is um, the World Health Organization system, is going to have a condition called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Um, and again, I see people who've got that and I treat people who've got that, especially if by treating it, I can stop them sexually abusing people. So for me, I don't really care whether they're using it as an excuse. If they want help and they can reduce that and then they stop hurting people, then that's 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 a good thing. So what would someone like you say about, say, Jeffrey Epstein? Um, Jeffrey Epstein, again, um, uh, I've got to be careful because obviously I've never met him and I've only read what I've read and seen the documentaries. I think if you – certainly the way he was portrayed in the recent Netflix documentary – uh, you wonder if he might have had a psychopathic personality. I'm being careful because I've never seen him. Interestingly, I think um, people like him who who prey on um, girls in the age group that he preyed on, um, they don't necessarily have a sexual attraction to young girls. They're not um, necessarily paedophiles. Um but what happens is that girls of that age are much more vulnerable and, you know, he, he targets them because he can exploit them. And because he's psychopathic, he doesn't care, but he's also very, very good at manipulating people. He's very, very good at finding people's weak spots and using his power and, 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 um, and, and getting into a situation where he can get them to do what he wants. And that's probably why he chose victims of the age that he chose. Um, so with him, I think it was much more to do with his psychopathy, which was part of that was his narcissism. Part of that was his callousness and that need for, for, for power and control. And um, as opposed to being driven by a, a sexual deviance, per se, because so, I, yeah. I mean, I'm going to kind of dilute the example Um and ask you about sort of two more local local cases. We had Labor politician Will Fowles who kicked a door in, smashed the place to pieces, and then pleaded mental illness as the basis for that behaviour. I mean, it's a well-known case. It's well-publicised. The photos are all over the internet. How is something like that the same or different to, say, a Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, look, I'm, again, I'm not going to... Talk I know about you're, anyone I know you're talking about specific, but um, yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think, I mean, you know, it's the different kind of mental health conditions will affect different people in different ways. And there's going to be different relationships with um, antisocial or violent behaviour. Um, so, you know, for example, if someone's um, depressed or got an alcohol problem, that can lead to um, impulsive behaviour or aggressive behaviour in various ways. I mean, one of the issues that does come up, and, and a lot of people wonder if people kind of ham it up or make it up, um, uh, or, you know, it's a convenient thing that a person kind of can, can play on. Um, and I'm sure, and, and that, that does happen sometimes. Um, and, um, but actually, certainly in criminal courts, it doesn't happen as often as people think it might happen. In fact, um, I've come across the other way around much more where people have got mental health issues and they don't want to put them forward as an excuse. 
And some of that is sometimes because they'd rather get a prison sentence than go to a secure psychiatric hospital. So actually, it's really complicated. It's you know the, the, this idea that um, you know people would always want to play a mental health card when they're in trouble does happen sometimes, but actually doesn't happen as often as a lot of people would think it would happen. Raj, it's been, it's fascinating to speak to you. And just to round out, I wanted to ask you one sort of final question, which is if there was one thing you would want to convey to the general public about the kind of work you do and how we should perhaps reorient our perspective in relation to mental illness, what would that be? You know, one, one of the really important things is, you know, despite the work I do, it's really, really important that people realise that people with mental health problems are actually very vulnerable themselves. For example, they're much more likely to be victims than perpetrators of crime. And I think it's a really, really important message because when someone like me talks about some of the cases I'm involved with, it can sometimes reinforce a message that various types of mental health conditions are um, related to kind of dangerous behaviour and in general they're not. The other thing is that, you know, where a lot of people who have mental health conditions who end up causing harm to others, you know, we can we can help them. And that means we could help them before they harm people and we can reduce harm. And then when they have harmed someone, we can help them after they've done that so they don't harm people again. And usually in that situation, it's a win-win because you improve someone's functioning in mental health and you stop them harming people. They're not, they're not they're not, they don't fight against each other. They're actually the same thing. You know, people who are doing well mentally don't tell, tend to harm people. So, um, you know, that's the message. And I think I like to give a positive message because a lot of the kind of things that I get involved with can be seen in a very kind of negative and scary way. But um, we, we can make a difference and stop people hurting other people. Dr. Raj Daji, thank you so much for your time and what has been riveting, uplifting. Thank you for coming on The Alternative Truth and um, empowering chat. Thank you for coming on The Alternative Truth. Thanks, May. Thank you for having me. Speaking to Raj, I felt genuinely challenged by the complexity of what informs behaviour that hurts others. It's clear his interests lay in understanding the underlying psychological drivers far more than moralising about what's bad. Offline, we actually talked about some pretty extreme examples, such as how a person can murder someone they love deeply when possessed by florid mental illness. Still, it left me thinking, how do we balance this knowledge with an epidemic of violence against women or violence by men against men? If we accept our mental health is wound up in our relationships – Can we realistically expect someone who's never been modelled what to do to be accountable? What if a person never happens upon a great therapist or the conditions for shame-free growth? Who cops it then? Equally, when does compassion turn toxic? When does it become enablement? Let's hear from someone who works on the front line, Dr Anthony Zarns. Anthony's a dual-qualified consultant physician in the specialties of emergency medicine and intensive care in Western Australia. He has over 20 years clinical experience working in the acute hospital setting and prior to this running a sports medicine practice. He's done further training in toxicology, maintains a long-term interest in teaching and also in mentoring the next generation of acute care doctors. You could say Anthony has a yen to be at the sharp edge of decision-making, in his own words, to seize the opportunity to make an intervention at a time of crisis 
that can really make a difference for people. I thought I'd ask you to sort of set the scene a little bit and tell us a little bit about your career to date. How did you come to work as a ICU and emergency um, department physician? Okay, well, I actually um, was originally interested in sports medicine, having um, you know been a patient all the way through high school pretty much. Um, and so once I graduated, did a lot of emergency as part of my best preparation to then move into sports medicine and then actually decided this was what I wanted to do. Um, I also realized I probably would burn out if I just did emergency medicine and the procedural component of intensive care so I also really enjoyed. So I've ended up training in both specialties. Um, one of the things I find that really attracted me to emergency was that ability to make an intervention at a time of a sudden acute um, you know, injury or event in people's lives that can really make a difference for them. So for everyone listening in, Anthony works, if I've got this right, very much on the front line, full-time in Perth, Western Australia. Um, some people might be asking at this point, why have you got an emergency physician speaking on a topic of mental illness? Tell me, why did you agree to speak on this topic? So I think emergency medicine sees the sharp end of mental illness and it also sees the interaction of mental illness and drug use, which is a massive um, co-contributor or component of what is perceived to be mental illness and bad behaviour. Um, and so, you know, the way medical systems are mostly set up is that anyone who needs to acutely be admitted to a mental health unit is usually brought to an emergency department for a medical assessment first to determine they don't have a medical cause or a physical cause of their um, behaviour or uh, mental their mental state and to assess that they don't have something that's going to make them too unwell to be looked after in a mental health unit. How do you actually sort that out? Because that's pretty interesting for people kind of, I guess, that are unanointed, that aren't part of the healthcare uh, system. They might be going, well, how do you work out what's just being foul and and inappropriate and drunk um, and someone that uh, gets to wear the label of, say, being mentally unwell? So one of the big issues is intoxication. So if someone is intoxicated, then their whole mental state can change massively. Uh, and there are definitely people who, when not intoxicated, uh, have no thoughts of suicidality whatsoever, and when intoxicated, try and kill themselves or succeed. And when they try, are then wondering who assaulted them when they're no longer intoxicated, even though they actually did it to themselves. Okay. I think a fair question to ask in a situation like that, though, is would a well person get that drunk? Um, what yes. comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do you have to be a bit unwell or unhappy to drink or take drugs to a point where you kind of lose your compass? Um, there's definitely people who are caught by surprise by their tolerance. People's tolerances definitely change over time. Uh, and it can do with a large number of matters, including um, how much sleep they've had, whether they've eaten at the same time, how much they drank. Um, as example of in toxicology, the most common thing a drink is spiked with is alcohol. So a person has a drink that they think has got one standard drink in it, but it's been spiked and has three. So, um, people can definitely be caught by surprise 
um, it's not just people that um, have an illness, something driving them to drugs or alcohol that do become intoxicated. For practical purposes, though, someone sort of, let's say someone's brought in um, aggressive and combative, and there's sort of two paths. One path is they're going to get a mental health admission, and the other path is they're going back to the cop shop. Definitely the third path of they will, you know, become no longer intoxicated and then no, and then go back home or to their place of residence. So... But how the, do you make that you determination? Make the assessment? Yeah. So, look, it's not easy. It's a simple, it's the simplest answer. Uh, the first thing you're looking at is what's their behaviour, what's their um, actual mental state, what's the, their, their basic physical signs as well. Uh, can you reason with this person? Do they have actually the ability to reason and interact? Um, you look at people that are very severely mentally unwell and they just have this incapacity to process what's going on around them. Um, but within their own ability to process, they're actually very coherent. Whereas in someone who's intoxicated, uh, and particularly if it's with stimulants, um, there's just this constant surge of aggression almost on top of everything and this inability to uh, stay on topic. Do you think, though, that there's an extent to which we are medicalising bad behaviour? Um, that's a complex one and to some extent, yes. So to answer that, we really need to look at how do we deal with bad behaviour and what drives it. So the key thing, you have people who have poor coping skills and so their way to cope when or the way, to, the way they respond to a situation they can't cope with is to get angry or get aggressive or get violent. Um, there are people who have true addiction issues and so when intoxicated, their behaviour is suboptimal, um, shall we say. And then within our current society, the gatekeeper to services such as counselling, psychologists, drug and alcohol services is GPs. So anyone with behaviour that's felt to need some work is directed into the medical system. So... Is So the question, is someone with poor coping skills, is that a truly a medical issue? Is it an issue for a psychologist um, to work through and help develop alternative techniques of dealing with situations? Off the back of that answer, I wanted to loop around and ask you to reflect, I guess, on what you've seen during the course of your career. Because one statistic I looked up uh, in preparation for this interview was that there are about 280,000 ED presentations with a mental health-related diagnosis. This is sort of three or four years ago. And th almost 80% of those um, could be broken down into four causes. One of them was a substance. So about 30% of that 80% was substance. About 25% was what they called neurotic stress-related somatoform disorders. About 12% was mood. And then the fourth category, another 11% was what they, what they described as schizophrenia, schizotypal and delusional disorders. Is that something that you feel is reflective of, say, a dysfunction in our society in the acquisition of coping skills? Because these are big numbers and these are, you know, potentially very impactful to your life on the front line. What's going wrong? Get to the core of things, don't you? Um, 
I don't have an answer. I think the answer is something is going wrong. Probably the scariest um, numbers, and I couldn't give you the absolute numbers, is the massive rise in adolescents um, presenting to emergency departments in crisis. Um, so in the past 10 years, it's gone from you might see one or two a year to almost every day we'll have a young teenager, so 15 or less, in the ED, either suicidal um, or um, very distressed with other, for other reasons. So there's a definite different things are changing and things are probably overall getting worse and it's probably not just the fact the population's getting bigger. What's driving it is very hard to say. Is drug use a component? Absolutely. You know, where I work, uh, it's uncommon for a person presenting uh, with a mental health-related issue to not have intoxication or drug use as part of the sorry, overall picture. So it's definitely a component of what's going on and I think a strong contributor. So do you think in a way we are collectively failing to regulate substances or is it that we really are failing to kind of teach or signal adaptive coping skills? What's more significant? How are we going to break this deadlock from your perspective, sitting there doing the mop-up, doing the actual acute care? I think, look, first of all, we're never going to stop humans taking mind-altering substances. We've been doing it since the dawn of time. So humans are going to do it. The question becomes why. When you look at society in general, what's been happening even in the past 20 years, we've broken into smaller family groups. We're far more communicating um, by text uh, where you don't even have the change in tones of voice It's part of the communication versus Twitter, where it's only so many characters. So actually the range of human contact is being um, eroded as well. And so that society as a whole is being you know, lessened and its cohesiveness is being lessened, let alone in this current, current state of social, which probably should be physical distancing. So, I, I mean, that is quite a poignant thing to point out in the moment, given where mental health is. What I took from what you're saying is that it's it's a case of it's a death by a thousand cuts. It's the atomization of the family. It's the erosion of meaningful two-way, in-person, embodied exchange um, that's causing a whole generation to be, perhaps, you know, from your perspective, have worse skills in being able to connect or connect with others, connect with themselves, self-soothe. Is that... Is that essentially what you're saying? I think that's, look, that's a component of it. Um, there's, you know, I said I don't have the answers would be the simplest way, but I think that's definitely a component of what's going on. People don't have the same support networks they used to have. At the same time, there's almost an expectation that, um, well, you know, I'll present to a doctor and they'll do something that will just fix the issue when... Part of the issue is is within ourselves and the way and our behaviour patterns. I'm going to be a bit provocative here and ask you whether this is just a cop out because, in some ways, life has never been better. We have never had more uh, economic abundance. We've had an uninterrupted economic growth. We've had um, we've all got access to, you know, information. Arguably, 
the conditions for life have never been safer or more well-resourced than they are in 2020. And yet you look at society, we're having a greater variance between the rich and poor. You know, it's the old saying, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The middle class is, you know, shrinking rapidly. And so we're getting becoming a divided society. So that's one thing. Um, the So, yes, there's a lot of resources out there, but not everyone has necessarily has access to them all. Um, the way the resources are set up is that that is generally at a cost of you always have to be on. Like, how do you feel if you leave your mobile phone behind? Bit anxious, I suppose. Yeah. So um, we're now attached to being constantly connected, constantly communicating. There's an expectation that people can call Mailing Dory and get through to her and that she will reply. And if you happen to be in a part of the world where you're trying to get some sleep or something else, well, why didn't you answer? So we don't, we've developed into a society where we don't, we're not switching off. We're not actually giving ourselves that mental rest, that mental rejuvenation. And that's part of the overall picture as well. So yes, we've got resources, but the one we've, we've burnt is time. Got it. So there's a breakdown between, I guess, our experience and our relationship with time, which is somehow dislocating us from the thing that we need to regenerate our mental well-being. I mean, isn't it upon the individual though? Like at what point does an adolescent turning 18, 21, 25, who knows, 30, have to turn around and go, well, my mental health is my responsibility. I need to, within all this choice, make choices that support mental well-being. So I think there's, you can break this down in several ways. Firstly, the issue becomes if no one, you know, as humans, we aren't born knowing everything we're going to learn. We need to learn. And so if the people around you have never learnt a set of skills or don't even have an awareness that these skills exist, how can they teach them? So that's the first component of it all. The second thing is there's a, you know, how does one define mental illness in the first place? So, and one's mental health. And I think it really comes to the crux of things. Is your mental health your um, ability to interact and understand the world from the same point of view as majority of humans? Is your mental health your emotional well-being? Is your mental health your ability to go to sleep tonight after what you did or saw today? Um, is, it is it how you cope with adversity? So mental health comes, you know, can be defined in many, many ways. And this is, I think, part of the crux of your actual topic is when you're saying mental illness is a weapon is how are you defining mental illness? Well, I think that there'd be out in the community a very broad definition of what mental health is, I guess, though, at a time when things like intimate partner violence or family violence are at absolute peak numbers, people are starting to ask that question of mental illness, you know, whether mental illness is being used as a weapon to get out of taking responsibility or, or stepping up and stepping into what needs to occur next. Would you agree with that? So I think, look, this really ties in what's the public perception of mental illness? and you know, when you look at it, how it's perceived, you know, portrayed in the media, it's generally associated with violence. So if you look at, you know, any news report about a violent about a person who's committed an act of violence in this court, it ends with having a mental health assessment. 
does it ever end with they've had one and they're not mentally ill? Um, you know, there's an overall perception that, they, that these people are uncontrolled and unpredictable. So there's a subtext that are essentially unhuman because they lack restraint or subhuman. So there's this massive stigma built up around the perception of mental illness. And the, you know, from my point of view, actually having a mental illness isn't a weapon. That's basically, it's a terrible burden to both the patient, their carers, and, the, and a system that's incredibly resource poor and poorly set up to actually help support these people. But the term and the perception of mental illness is used as a weapon. And I think that's the big difference. Um, Can you expand so, on that? What do you mean the term mental illness is used as a weapon? Okay, so it'd be the very s simple thing of you have to be mentally ill to do this. Or, um, you know, a describing someone as being mentally ill as a way of putting them down. Or you can get into a more complex thing. You're using the stigma attached to mental illness to prevent inquiry or exploration of what you've done. You've just behaved badly. Oh, I'm mentally ill. I'm seeing. I'm seeing. I've got an appointment tomorrow to see see a psychiatrist. So you're actually by using men, using the statement of mental illness and all the negative stigma attached to it. You're shutting down. Well, wait a second. You kicked the door in, or you punched your wife. Um, that's not necessarily being medically ill. That could just be bad behaviour. And but you're using the perception of men of mental illness to prevent people looking into it. So you're saying that the dragnet term of mental illness is encapsulating or it's catching with it bad behaviour but also people that are legitimately unwell needing psychiatric or medical treatment and therein lies the issue is that we're lacking nuance, we're lacking the ability to sift them, sift the situation out. Yep. So like when I, you know, Violence is a, almost an everyday event in the emergency department. And it's actually very rare for a person with a pure mental illness to be violent in the emergency department. Okay? It's almost always associated with drug use. And it's more commonly out of the mental illnesses, or as they're, as they're defined, with the personality disorders or the people that have they've developed a personality that does not cope with or has developed a way of coping with things in certain ways, um, which often involves either violence or, um, the, or manipulative behaviour. I wanted to ask you to reflect on, I guess, where you think we, whether that's broader society, the media, um, the medical profession needs to go in our treatment of or relationship to mental illness. What do we need to recognise what do we need to change? So a number of issues. Firstly, that a person who's actually mentally unwell, you know, it's a, it's a terrible burden for them and they, we need much more resources to help these people. Secondly, um, there is essentially no good medical services that involve the care of both the physical and the mental. And this is where some, one of the few places of mental illness use the weapon within medicine. If a person who's physically unwell and has a mental illness, you'll have both the mental health physician saying, we can't look after this patient because we're not set up to look after their physical illness, which is why they come to emergency departments to be assessed for it. And then you'll have the physician saying, we can't look after this patient because we're not set up to look after the mental health component of their, of their health. 
And so that's where it's sometimes used as a weapon and the patient ends up staying in ED, which is probably the absolute worst place for a person with a mental illness to actually be, particularly for a prolonged period of time. We need some way of dealing with people who are being affected by drugs and, um, and addiction services. Um, but particularly for people that are just intoxicated at this point in time, um, there's actually really no good spot for them. An emergency department, um, you know, is, um, yes, we can contain them, but we usually have to sedate someone, uh, which is, has all the risks attached to it. Um, you've got a jail, which is, of course, not set up if they become medically unwell as part of their um, intoxication. And you've got go home and someone else will deal with it, namely the family. So, and then you've got the actual services of people that are addicted and are going through the, you know, erosion of their personality, coping skills, um, mental faculties that can come with addiction, particularly to the symptomatics, um, such as methamphetamine. And there really are very little services for them, which are usually been set up by people who have managed to get out of the trap. Um, and they're under-resourced massively. And so, again, it would be at least once a week, I'll have a concerned parent with a, with a child who started, started getting into, into drug use and they've got nowhere to go. Anthony, I feel like we've opened Pandora's box and mm-hmm. without having the time to fully close it. It's a massive topic and it's all interconnected. Anthony Zahns, thank you for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Thanks, man. Listening to Dr Anthony Zahns, it was clear that we're approaching or at a tipping point of sorts. I found myself asking, is what is happening in the emergency room the canary in the coal mine? Or is it a symptom of the multi-system breakdown? It would seem that between the territories of our first and second guest, there's a chasm of sorts. Somewhere between incarceration and hospital, we're failing to either support or create the foundations of good mental health. One thing's clear, whether weaponized or not, the mental health epidemic points to a collective and individual mismatch between what stresses us out and our ability to cope. If things are gonna be different in the future, I'm left asking this. As a community, how can we better equip ourselves What do we need to do to reform the system of incentives to see prevention and recovery prioritised? What needs to be redesigned within the mainframe of the healthcare system to cope with people who have both physical and mental challenges? And as a society, how do we need to reframe our mental models and language so that we can have a functional dialogue about what mental health is and isn't? Thank you once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au.